Hello everyone, welcome to episode number 36 of Vigilance for the End Times. This episode is entitled Under Authority, Living as an Extension of the Coming Kingdom of God on Earth, Part 1. Uh, during the next two episodes, we will be looking at the churches of Revelation as our example. And in doing so, we will see the priorities of Jesus Christ in great detail. We will also see examples of the priorities he expects the church in this present age to be devoting itself to. So much of what we have held in high esteem for decades has been nothing more than religious busywork, which is only going to earn swift rebukes and possibly even judgment when we stand before him. And this has been a fire burning in me for quite a few weeks now. It's taken me at least the last two or three weeks just to begin to really get a handle on what I feel the Lord trying to speak to the church, especially here in the West. Um, I mean, even just a cursory look at the activities of the seven churches in Revelation clearly reveals that much of what we've been engaged in is even worse than wood, hay, and stubble. I mean, one thing that is glaringly apparent when looking at the seven churches, our American religious tradition of going to church would have been unrecognizable to the seven churches. And they probably would have rebuked us to our face even in the condition some of them were in. With the sound rebukes that many of them suffered, we ourselves haven't even come close to doing what even one of them had accomplished, except for maybe the church at Laodicea, which thought it had no need of anything, it was fine as it was, or the church at Smyrna, which had a name that it was alive, but Jesus pronounced it DOA. So, but as we look at the Gospels and the message of the New Testament letters, there's one common theme that is distinctive to the New Testament church and to New Testament believers, hearing the words of Jesus and doing them. The very authority of the New Testament apostles stems from living that spiritual reality and enforcing it. That is why the apostles could speak and govern with such authority because they were submitted to the very origin of that authority, Jesus Christ himself. In this hour, there will be men of like spirit and heart who are likewise completely submitted to and rightly related to the authority of Jesus Christ, which will in turn cause them to walk and flow in that same apostolic authority. It is quite apparent that the American religious system balks at the notion of apostolic authority, and that is because they prefer to rule the church themselves in their own flesh, in their own mind, and in their own power. However, as we are looking at the seven churches as our example, one thing is clear. Apostolic power 
is fully intended by Jesus Christ himself to be fully operational throughout all ages for the governing and functioning of his church. And we keep forgetting that it's his church and he has the right to demand that it function according to his requirements, his specifications, and not according to the things that we prefer. Revelation 2 verse 2 reveals this spiritual fact, and if we're paying close attention to his words, he describes this church and its spiritual makeup, and I'll give you a hint. His opening comments to this church in Revelation 2 2 is very similar to the words of Paul in his letters. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. Now, I realize that if we're honest, when we read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and as we read the dialogue that Jesus is saying to each of the seven churches, We aren't really reading it as though it could be possibly happening in real time right now, are we? If we're honest, the answer is no. We're reading it as though it is some future event yet to happen a long, long ways off in the future. But in our minds, never do we for a moment contemplate that this Jesus is speaking to the churches, the body of Christ, here and now, right where we stand. And yet that is exactly my point for this message, that Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, is very much speaking to the churches right here on earth, right now in this time, but we have allowed ourselves to be turned stone deaf by religious conditioning. Jesus specifically says to each of the seven churches, Let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, not what the Holy Spirit will be saying, not what the Holy Spirit plans on saying, but what the Holy Spirit is saying, present tense, real time. In the book of Acts chapter 9, it says that the church continued in the fear of the Lord and had rest. This was after Paul had been dramatically saved and was no longer persecuting the church. And it was such a notable miracle that the church saw the power and authority of Jesus working mightily on their behalf. In other words... The power of the lordship of Jesus Christ over the church was a very real and present reality to them, not some religious concept that only had meaning somewhere off in the future. American churchianity has blinded us to the present reality of Jesus Christ as Lord over his church in the here and now. And so by default, we have relegated that real-time relationship with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit to some future far-off event or timetable. And we have been rendered completely spiritually impoverished because of it. 
Did not Jesus make the all-inclusive statement that I am the vine and you are the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing? Now, if it sounds far-fetched to anyone that the church here on earth right now and in all ages is meant to function under and in conjunction with the real-time lordship of Jesus Christ, let's take a look at a passage of Scripture that reveals this as an ever-present reality, whether we are aware of it or not. This is Paul the Apostle speaking here, and I'm going to read you the verse first. It's 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, although I am absent from you in body, he was in prison, folks, that did not take away from his apostolic authority. Although I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. And I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, along with the power of the Lord Jesus, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, I want to encourage everyone, take some time on your own to read this passage for yourself very slowly and really and truly let it sink in because you really need to grasp what just happened in this passage. This was the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians, dealing with someone who was bringing gross sin into the church, and because it was such an endangerment to the spiritual health of the whole assembly, it became necessary for the power of the Lord Jesus to be manifested along with the delegated authority given to Paul as an apostle. Like I said, Paul was writing from prison, so physically he could not be there. However, he makes a declaration, I am with you in spirit. And he wasn't just being cutesy or using a figure of speech, because we always say that in conversation, so I'll be there in spirit. Pay close attention to Paul's exact words. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus. What did Jesus say? Where two or more are gathered in my name. What? There I am in the midst, in your midst, among you. The person of Jesus Christ is among you by the power and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what everyone needs to comprehend from that statement is that the Lordship of Jesus Christ is available in real time to those who are devoted to the Lord in godly fear and righteousness. And it's not some devotional little kumbaya type of thing. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira. They experienced it, only it was the wrong side of the coin. One thing is brutally obvious as you read the words of Jesus as he addresses each of the seven churches, this is not the same Jesus we were taught about in Sunday school on the flannel graph board. This is a Jesus that is seldom spoken about 
in our Western religious system, if we're perfectly honest about it. This is the Jesus who is Lord over all, and that includes Lord over his church. And we have the picture here. He inspects them like a military commander. He calls them out where they're lacking or deficient or disobedient, but he also commends them for where they are functioning properly and in accordance with his will and his nature. But this is most definitely not the Jesus that the professing church of the West recognizes. They will happily talk about any other version of Jesus possible except this one. That is because they're in complete and total rebellion against this Jesus, and they are willfully unsubmitted to this Jesus. The fact remains that this Jesus is going to hold every single church accountable, and the ones that were built by men and run by men, they're not going to have a very good outcome. But what works in our favor, for those of us who have the stomach for it and the heart for it, We can begin now becoming very familiar and, yes, even intimate with the Jesus who addressed each of the seven churches in a very particular way that corresponded with their actions and their experience. Those that were being persecuted, he identified with them by way of comfort and reassurance. Those who needed to repent and to change, he identified with them as their commander-in-chief who would hold them accountable if they did not return to his specific standards. This is the Jesus that we will stand before and receive from him, as Paul put it, our due for what was done in the body pre-resurrection. Everyone in the body of Christ right now, regardless of your maturity level, regardless of your level of experience in the spirit, etc., every single one of us has a very unique opportunity right now. How long we will have this opportunity remains to be seen, so time is truly of the essence. This opportunity is something that is highly prized in the business world, and the more competitive and powerful the business, the more prized this kind of opportunity is. It is called positioning. We see examples of this played out in the Gospels repeatedly, but I'm not sure if you've noticed. But tonight, the Lord brought it very forcefully to my attention. And even though I've seen it in the past, I haven't seen it until now for what it really is in the Spirit. And actually, I've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks thinking about this gradually. But all evening, a phrase kept coming to me over and over again. And it was the words of the centurion to Jesus had offered to go to his home to pray for a servant who was lying at the point of death. But part of what the centurion said has been resonating with me for quite a while. After telling Jesus that he felt completely unworthy that Jesus should even come under his roof, he, ha- he said something that just hit me between the eyes. And tonight, the Holy Spirit brought it home to me with a force that I have never felt before. The centurion said to Jesus, You do not need to come to my home, for I too am a man under authority. And I give orders to one, and he follows them. And I give orders to yet another, and he likewise obeys my orders. 
So just speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. I am sure that there are many men in the military who, even when they are not going about military business, are able to recognize another person with military training and bearing simply by the way they conduct themselves. So this centurion recognized the spiritual authority with which Jesus was conducting himself, and it was so pronounced that he was able to submit himself to Jesus' evident authority, and he acknowledged that Jesus obviously had a higher rank than he did, so if Jesus exercised his greater authority, then the result would be that the centurion's servant would be healed and the illness would have no choice but to obey the words of Jesus. Once we begin to understand the principle revealed over and over again in the Gospels of Kingdom Authority and how it works when we are rightly related and submitted to it, then we begin to see operating in the Spirit in a new way. We've all read passages hundreds of times in the Gospels that revealed this very thing, but we didn't even realize what we were looking at. Case in point, Jesus speaking to the fig tree. When the disciples saw the results of the words that Jesus had spoken to the fig tree the day before, they said, Lord, increase our faith. And then Jesus went right into explaining the principle of exercising divine authority. He said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it shall obey you. Now, isn't that exactly what the centurion said to Jesus? Jesus, if you will say, it will obey. And what did Jesus say in response? He said, behold, I have not seen such a great faith, not in anyone in Israel. And... (laughs) Wasn't that what the disciples asked Jesus to do, to increase their faith? The very faith that the centurion had possessed, but they themselves did not. So over and over again in the Gospels, we see that the exercise of kingdom authority and kingdom faith is contingent upon recognizing the authority of Jesus and being rightly submitted and related to it. The disciples were with Jesus all the time, and yet they always seemed to be astonished and amazed at the authority authority with which he acted. Remember what they said when he rebuked the storm on the sea? They said, what manner of man is this that even speaks to the waves and they obey him? There is that combination again of speaking to the opposing situation and it obeying. So tonight and the past couple of days, the Lord's been stirring up all of this inside my spirit. And the phrase that I kept hearing was under authority. And immediately the awareness that I had was of the overwhelming urgency of the call of the Holy Spirit to every single member of the body of Christ right now to come consciously under the authority of Jesus Christ and to begin to live and conduct ourselves individually and corporately under his authority. 
because he intends to pour out his spirit and his power in a profound and unprecedented way. But if we are not positioned as completely and consciously submitted to him and placing ourselves under his authority, then we will not receive it. Jesus said, when he talked to the disciples, they said, tell us what will be the signs of the end of the age and of your coming. And one of the last things he says was, and this gospel shall be preached in all the nations as a witness, and then the end shall come. And he specifically stated, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness to all nations. The same gospel of the kingdom that Jesus commissioned the disciples to preach to every city that he was going to go into. That gospel hasn't changed. It is an actual kingdom principle that we see demonstrated all throughout the gospels. Those who exercised authority over sickness and demons were those that Jesus himself had called and conferred his power to and upon. Now in this regard, remember there was one scene going and casting out demons whom John, the uh, one of the apostles, wanted to rebuke because he said to Jesus, he's not following with us. In other words, John only believed the man to be qualified to cast out demons if he was walking with them in Jesus. But obviously this was an individual who recognized the authority in Jesus, and so he, by the same faith that the centurion had, began moving in that authority because he had recognized it and in some way submitted himself to it. All of this ties in very directly to one of my previous posts that dealt with murmuring, complaining, and focusing on worldly concerns and worldly distresses because if we're using our speech primarily to complain and murmur, then we are effectively neutralizing any spiritual authority that we could otherwise exercise. You can't spend a large portion of your time murmuring and complaining about worldly situations and then use the same mouth to exercise spiritual authority over spiritual matters. Why do you think it is that in the very early parts of each gospel account, Jesus spends time refocusing their minds from the earthly concerns to their heavenly Father who provides for their earthly concerns. Do you see that there's a very specific spiritual reason why Jesus framed things the way that he did, when he did, and in the order that he did? None of the things that Jesus did or said were haphazard or random. He was a man under authority, as a centurion recognized, because he said, I only do what I see my father doing. And he conducted himself that way every single day in word and in deed. He kept himself rightly related to his heavenly father and submitted to his heavenly father by spending time in prayer every single day, yielding himself and submitting himself to his heavenly father's will, which is why he had the authority to say, when you pray, pray in this manner, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
the very best way and the most effective way to consciously come under the authority of Jesus Christ and all of heaven is to spend time every single day reciting the word of God to yourself and applying it verbally to yourself. And when you are reading specific verses, I would really recommend the passages that pertain to who you are in Christ and personalize them because in so doing, you are applying that word to yourself. You're not just reading a mere book. You are speaking the very word of the living God over yourself, over your circumstances, over your situations, over your home, and over your family. And because it's God's word, it has ultimate authority and ultimate power. And so you are consciously, willingly, and verbally submitting yourself to that power and that authority. I'm going to say that again. When you are doing this, you are consciously and willingly and verbally submitting yourself to the power and authority of God's Word. You are literally building a spiritual fortress around yourself as you are speaking the Word of God over your being and over everything about you. Or do we not remember that Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. It is not just a religious exercise. Now remember, the very things that Jesus was making real to his disciples, the very things that were real to the centurion, if you are a man under authority, you have the power to say and it will obey. One powerful declaration that we are making over ourselves, over our loved ones and our families, as we actively and deliberately align ourselves with the Lordship of Jesus Christ every day in real time is that the spirit is more important than the material. Always. And as we submit ourselves in this way to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, head over his church, we are declaring that every aspect of our lives is submitted to him and that our priorities become submitted to his. One crucial thing that we must understand, one inescapable truth that we must be willing to absolutely fully embrace is this, that in order to be actively submitted to his lordship means that we must be in a position to be governed and directed by his spirit. Otherwise, our submission is largely ineffective. If someone's in the military and they are to be submitted to their commanding officers, this means they must be in a position to receive and understand direct orders. If that person is rendered incapable of receiving and following direct orders, then their submission to their higher command is rendered impotent and ineffectual. I say this first of all because, for one thing, the New Testament affirms it. Secondly, there are multitudes in professing Christianity today who believe that they can be rightly submitted to the Lordship of Jesus without being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Well, the New Testament reveals that to be 
a completely false assumption. Jesus said, My sheep know me and hear my voice and follow me. He did not say, My sheep read the Bible and follow me. He said, My sheep know me and hear my voice and follow me. Jesus is a real person with a will and intellect and omnipotent knowledge of everything. He knows what you need to be told at any given moment in time. He knows how you need to be directed at any given moment in time. And we have to be receptive to the voice of the Holy Spirit whom he sent to guide us in real time. The Bible is God's revelation of who he is in every aspect as well as every aspect of his abundant provision for us. Following that, it is up to each individual to receive from that provision for themselves on an individual basis. And you know, it's interesting to note that the individuals who balk the most at subjects like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, etc., make themselves the source of their own provision by relying on their own minds, their own thinking, and their own religious assumptions. First and foremost, the Bible is about one thing, a single theme that runs from the first to the last verse, Jesus Christ. One verse sets the record straight. The first verse in Revelation says the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is from beginning to end about the risen, ascended Lord Jesus Christ, omnipotent head of his church throughout all of time and eternity. Now, Satan has done, as usual, a bang-up job of distracting and diverting our attention from the main thing to the peripheral. What I mean by that is, that's why so many self-proclaimed prophets have been selling their books on decoding revelation, the mystery of the seven seals, and blah, blah, blah. The primary subject of this book is Jesus Christ and his church. That is the main focal point. And until we have a clear, solid foundational understanding of that, don't even begin tinkering around with seals and scrolls because you'll just confuse yourself and make the devil even happier. What the devil is deathly afraid of, and the reason why he has created so many illusions and smoke screens concerning the book of Revelation, is because the one thing he fears the most is a church that is fully surrendered to and empowered by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He absolutely does not want the book of Acts part 2 coming down on his head. In a word, the reason why the Church of the West is so powerless is because it is not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It operates according to its own authority, its own authority and its own design. And when I say its own authority, I mean there's hundreds of thousands of pastors and thousands and thousands of different little church buildings. So it, in reality, is a completely counterfeit religious system 
that is not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, nor will it ever truly submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If it was going to do so, it would have done so a long time ago. But once again, we mere mortals have greatly underestimated the ability of the angel of light to set up a religious hierarchy here on earth that professes to know God, but by their works they deny him. Now in Revelation, Jesus speaks to a church that has tested and tried those who profess to be apostles, but found them to be liars. Has anybody bothered to ask themselves what was the test and what proved the false apostles to be false? Well, I've spent some time really thinking about that and contemplating the nature of the true apostles, Paul, Peter, James, and John. And for those who are paying attention to the letters of these apostles, the one thing that marks a true apostle is their complete and total submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and their lifestyle shows it and confirms it. I think the most vitally important thing that each one of us can do in this hour is to take a long, close look, and I'm speaking to myself as well, to take a long, close look at our personal connection to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We will each and every one stand before him, and that makes the time that we have now the most valuable commodity any of us will ever possess. Every hour that we spend devoting ourselves to becoming ready for when we will stand before him is time that will pay dividends for eternity. So many in the religious world are busy doing things for God, but are those activities born out of a direct prompting from the Holy Spirit, or is it something much lesser dictating those activities? And how many of those activities are outlined in God's directives for the New Testament body of Christ? There are so many passages in the New Testament that have to do specifically with the body being built up and edified by its members and by the ministry gifts of apostles, prophets, teachers, etc. That is the primary focus and priority of the Holy Spirit revealed in the New Testament. If we are not ensuring that the activities we are engaging in, in God's name, do not fit his criteria, then we're essentially wasting his time and we're shortchanging the body of Christ by substituting our works for the workings of the Holy Spirit. And listen, folks, we're not going to get to pick and choose what activities we engage in in the kingdom of God when it comes to earth. So we need to get ready living that way now in his church. Most Christians believe that, yes, there is indeed coming a kingdom of God to the earth. That is Jesus coming to set his kingdom up here on earth. But what do the subjects of a kingdom do? They submit to and obey the words of their king. So then why do we treat the Bible, the word of God, the word of our king, as something to merely intellectualize or debate? Does not this one thing show us how false our religious system is. It professes to know God 
and calls him Lord, but it does not do the things that he says to do, and it does not in any way encourage us to submit to his authority and his authority alone. Not when it calls into question half of the things that our king has said. So it is time for us to realize that there is a very clear-cut choice to make. And the longer we take to make it, the higher the price will be when the tab comes due. Professing believers in the West love to quote the verse about how every knee will bow, but we forget to include our own knees. And we need to start bowing now. In the same way that John the Baptist and the prophets before him were preparing the way of the Lord for his first coming, God is raising up voices to prepare his people for his second and final coming and the coming of his kingdom. And part of preparing his people for that coming kingdom is to make it known that no other allegiances will stand in his way. And every single individual needs to make sure that their heart is 100% allied to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and submitted to him and him alone. When the scripture says every knee shall bow, that's precisely what it means. Every knee shall bow. There will be no denominations, no deacon boards, no senior pastors, or any of that crap. When you are kneeling before him, you're not going to have a denominational piece of paper to refer to. It's going to be just you and him, me and him. This is a time of the clearest warnings, exhortations, and admonitions. No kid gloves. And no mercy shown to the things made by the hands of men. Human sentimentality has no jurisdiction here because the coming kingdom of God will not be a democracy where we get to vote on what we want and what we don't. We've played that game of religion for hundreds of years and I'm here to tell you that time is over. Whether you listen or not, that's up to you. The king's of the earth will cry out for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from his presence because they were not already submitted to his supreme authority beforehand. But for those who take refuge under the shadow of his wings now, there is nothing to fear, not even death. Some might think that the institutional church is a non-issue, but let me remind you, there's only one kingdom, and the institutional church is not it. The institutional church is not even a part of God's coming kingdom. Now, if that statement shocks you, well, then you're overdue for a wake-up call. That's the nicest way I could put it. The Old Testament and the New Testament both reveal one thing. There is only one kingdom that has dominion over everything, and that kingdom has one Lord, one king, and one head. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And anything not directly submitted to his lordship is at best an aberration and at worst is an enemy of that kingdom and is an entity working against that kingdom. To make that point a little bit clearer, Jesus said 
in the context of casting out demons. He that is not with me is against me. Now, that is just one single qualifying declaration in the context of deliverance. Jesus isn't including any other supernatural works of God in that statement, just deliverance. And he is saying, if you are not engaging in the work of casting out demons with him, then you are working against him. Notice how there's no gray areas. There's no neutrality. There's no deacon board assembly to discuss the matter and try to negotiate with Jesus on this one point. I hope you can see that. We have been more than happy to serve a man-made construct for hundreds of years, making it prettier and shinier with every passing decade, giving it all of our attention, all of our energy, all of our human sentimentality and emotion, never bothering to ponder whether or not it was truly a thing of God. But as with everything concerning his kingdom and his church, the body of Christ, God is most certainly clear on every single point. And we have rationalized every single point to our own destruction and harm. For example, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are a perfect snapshot of what God intends for his people here on earth, the church, the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 details the supreme government of the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father over the church and through the church. It is the government of the Holy Spirit that administrates the authority and the power of the Godhead in and through the church here on earth. None of what he does was ever intended to be submitted to a deacon board or a denomination's oversight. We did that mess all by ourselves. And I will tell you point blank right now that the reason why God has stoked this far inside of my soul on this subject is because he's going to allow and arrange circumstances that will absolutely demolish every bit of what men have held so dear to their chest of the institutional church. And whatever is left standing and is not left in the rubble will end up serving the false church, the religious system that will persecute and kill the true saints of God. Regardless of whether you believe that or not, that is what is going to take place. Just keep watching. The New Testament design for human leadership within the context of God's church was plurality of leadership. Elders among the flock, not a pastor over the flock. Everything that does, that does not comply and conform to God's blueprint is out of order. And if it's out of order, then it's in rebellion, regardless of anyone's sentimental intentions. God does not run the universe on sentiment. He runs it based on everything being ordered to his will. When it comes to his church, he took the time to have the Holy Spirit reveal his design for the church in the New Testament. It is we who have taken it upon ourselves to deviate in every conceivable way. And again, 
we will not only reap the consequences of that, we have been reaping the consequences of that for hundreds of years now. We've just not been paying very close attention. But if the Gospels reflect anything, it is the authority of the kingdom of God that is confirmed over and over again in the Gospels. Again, most notably with the centurion whose servant was healed by Jesus. When the disciple and when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. The very second line in the prayer that Jesus told them to pray was, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There is only one will in the universe that is lawful and that is supreme. And that is the will of God. When Satan said, I will, that was the first opposing, insubordinate will to ever exist. And eons after he was cast out of heaven and judged, he led Adam and Eve to choose their will over the spoken and revealed will of God. If something does not spring from the spoken and clearly revealed will of God, then it is in rebellion to the will of God. There is no gray area. There's no area of neutrality. Either something is the will of God or it's not. That is why the numerous prayers by Paul for the church to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God so that they would walk worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him in all their ways. That is also why the New Testament clearly reveals how God constituted the church to be governed, led, and directed by his Holy Spirit. Men have chosen to create their own version of the church and run it any way they see fit, but they've only deceived themselves and they will reap what they've sown. It doesn't matter how kindly the man is or how well-intentioned the man is, the church belongs to one Lord one God and one head, and that is not a pastor. So we are going to conclude for the moment, but join me for our next episode coming up, episode 37, Under Authority, Living as an Extension of the Coming Kingdom of God on Earth, Part 2. And we will be continuing to look at the churches of Revelation, where Jesus addresses their works their shortcomings, and the remedies that Jesus gives for each. Um, Also, we will look at keys to developing and maintaining perseverance in the end times. Perseverance is a dominant theme from Genesis to Revelation, and the primary spiritual function of perseverance is to enable us to inherit all that is promised to us in the word especially our inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. Hebrews 6.12 says, So that you may not become half-hearted, but be imitators of those who through faith and perseverance are now heirs to the promise. God bless you, and thank you for tuning in.